1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Maybe you guys have heard this story. A guy goes to a local tailor to have uh, the final fitting on a custom-made suit. Right away, he noticed that the right sleeve is too long. Tailor says, ah, don't worry about it. Look, if you just hold your arm out in front of you and crook a little like this, see, it's perfect. Yeah, but the left leg is too long. It's dragging on the floor. I could trip over it. Taylor says, no, don't worry. Just bend your knee a little bit like this, and it will ride up just right at the cuff right there at the ankle. Okay, fine. The guy says, but look, look at the collar. It's like way up around my ears. Taylor says, that's nothing. Come here. Just hunch your shoulders up a little bit. No, a little bit more. Now, look at yourself in the mirror. Did you ever see such a well-fitting suit? So all crinkled up, this guy pays the tailor, walks out with his new suit, limps out into the street, looking like a pretzel. He nearly runs into two old ladies, and one of them whispers to the other, that poor man. The other one says, yeah, but what a great fitting suit. (laughs) Now, what does that have to do with this morning's message? Not a whole lot. Except it is about a suit. The title of the message this morning is, What an Ugly Suit. But we're not talking about the kind that you wear. Let's, let's catch you guys up to speed if you haven't been with us. In 1 Corinthians, this is a corrective epistle. You guys can probably finish this sentence by now. This was a church with problems. Maybe a memory problem could be. This was a church with issues. They had major issues in this church. We've covered already division in the church, love of worldly wisdom, pride. And then last Thursday we covered in chapter 5, Paul addressed the fact that they had sin in the camp. They had someone who was uh, having grievous sexual sin in their life and it was going on and on. And everybody was proud of their tolerance. And they've addressed all these issues, Paul has. This morning we come to a new issue. The issue this morning we find in verse 1, chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? The issue this morning, the issue at hand, is that the saints in Corinth were suing each other. They were taking each other to court, apparently quite a bit. I think they learned that from the culture around them. This was a very present part of Greek culture. Greek culture was very litigious or litigious. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? Can you guys think of another culture that might be very litigious? Greek culture, they even considered litigation a spectator sport. They actually enjoyed it. They would get together sometimes and argue cases just to see who would win. Litigation just for spectator sport. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? I did a quick search on the web. I found the names of Judge Judy, Judge Joe Brown, Judge Mills Lane, the People's Court, Judge Mathis, Divorce Court, Court TV, the O.J. Simpson trial, the Michael Jackson trial. They were very litigious. They even thought of it as a spectator sport. Hmm. I wonder if that sounds like any culture that might be around us. Kathleen Robertson of Austin, Texas, was awarded $780,000 by a jury of her peers after breaking her ankle tripping over a toddler who was running inside a furniture store. 
The owners of the store were understandably surprised at the verdict, considering the misbehaving little toddler was Mrs. Robertson's son. A 19-year-old Carl Truman of Los Angeles won $74,000 in medical expenses when his neighbor ran over his hand with a Honda Accord. Mr. Truman apparently didn't notice there was someone at the wheel of the car when he was trying to steal his neighbor's hubcaps. Terrence Dixon of Bristol, Pennsylvania was leaving a house he had just finished robbing by way of the garage. He was not able to get the garage door to go up since the automatic door opener was malfunctioning. He couldn't re-enter the house because the door connecting the house and garage locked when he put it, pulled it shut. The family was on vacation. And Mr. Dixon found himself locked in the garage for eight days. He subsisted on a case of Pepsi he found and a large bag of dried dog food. He sued the homeowner's insurance, claiming the situation had caused him undue mental anguish. The jury agreed to the tune of $500,000. And uh, one more. Jerry Williams of Little Rock, Arkansas, was awarded $14,500 in medical expenses after being bitten on the buttocks by his next-door neighbor's beagle. The beagle was on a chain in its owner's fenced yard. The award was less than sought because the jury felt the dog might have been just a little provoked at the time by Mr. Williams, who was shooting it repeatedly with a pellet gun. Corinth was a litigious society, and the church like everything else we've seen, had adopted the values of Corinth. There's all these examples of here in America, goofy litigation. Healthcare costs are skyrocketing. Why? One of the reasons is because we are a litigious society. At its core of, of suing people, of being so litigious, is really one thing. Greed, selfishness, the idea that I demand my rights. Verse 1, Paul says again, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? The word dare there means to be bold. Paul is saying, look, aren't you embarrassed? Aren't, could you be so bold that you have a matter against another, a brother, and you take this to the court of law? Now, I want to make sure you understand, Paul is not saying that we should never used the court system. Paul used the court system. Remember, he would claim his Roman citizenship to get him out of a, a pickle or two. Paul used the Roman court system, and he's not telling us not to never use the system. But when you look, at, look down at verse 5 and 6, and you'll see, it becomes clear that Paul is talking about when a Christian sues another Christian. He says, when a Christian brother sues another brother. You guys would agree in the Bible, over and over again, we are called that we are in the family of God. We are brothers and sisters. And it's particularly ugly. It's a particularly ugly suit when brother sues brother. When family sues each other. This happens sometimes when, when you know, a family seems to be going along great and all of a sudden someone dies and there's money at stake. Families can be torn apart. By ugly suits. I mean, what an ugly scene. Brother suing brother. When a family sues each other, it's particularly repugnant. It always is an ugly suit. And usually it's always a suit that both parties will wear for the rest of their lives. Because what it does is it screams, this money or this house or this thing 
is more important to me than my family. Paul says here, that takes guts. He says, do you dare? Do you, are you, you're not embarrassed? Our outline this morning, this is like three Sundays in a row we've had outline. It's good, huh? Our outline this morning, if you want to put down on the left side of your page, you can put down four I's. The, the initial I. I, 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 I. The first one is issue. We've seen what the issue was. That brother was suing brother. But there's four I's down the, the left side of your page. And that kind of sums up the Corinthian focus. I, I, me, mine. So we've already seen the first I, which is the issue. Brother suing brother. Now Paul's going to, the next I for you is he's going to speak about the idiocy of the issue. If the issue is brother suing brother, Paul's going to make it very clear that that's not really the smartest thing to do. He's basically saying, not only is this daring, what you're doing, Corinthians, but it's, it's dumb. Look at the two words at the end of verse 1. There are two words there. One is the word unrighteous and the other one is saints. He says, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? The word unrighteous there is adikos. Listen to this. It describes anyone who violates or has violated justice. It means someone who is unrighteous, one who is sinful. It means one who deals fraudulently with others. Deceitful. What Paul's talking about here is in spiritual terms. The Bible makes very clear, a very clear distinction, delineation between a believer and an unbeliever. First of all, we should start by saying there is none righteous. The Bible says, no, not one. Not one person in this room is righteous on your own. As we stand before God, none of us are righteous until you bring Jesus into the picture. The believer who is attached to Jesus, who is in Jesus, is called righteous. Amazing that I could be called righteous. I could stand before God and be called righteous. It's all because of Jesus. But the unbeliever, the one who says, no thanks, I don't, I don't need Jesus, he stands in his own righteousness, which we know falls way short. His own righteousness is like filthy rags. So think about this. Paul's talking about the context of a court system. What he's basically saying is even the most wise judge... In the world, unless he knows Jesus, he stands before God, a criminal. Even the most wise judge in this world, unless he trusts and follows Jesus, he stands before God. He one day will stand before God as a criminal. So think about the the ramifications of that. If that's true, then if I sue my brother, I'm a Christian, he's a Christian, I sue my brother, spiritually... It's like us walking into a jail and asking the closest convict to decide our case. You understand what I'm saying? I am not uh, downgrading. I'm not belittling judges in our system. There are many wonderful judges. I'm not berating our judicial system. I prefer ours over any other. But spiritually, if I sue another brother, we are both supposed to be brothers and we, we go to a judge who doesn't know Jesus. Spiritually, it's like going to someone who is convicted before God. 
The Bible says unless that man is born again, he just doesn't get it. You can turn back with me. Take a a few pages to the left. Chapter 2. You may be reminded of this. Chapter 2, verse 14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Look at this, verse 15. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Do you get it? The moment you were born again, you received in some degree the mind of Christ so that you get things that even a wonderfully wise judge who doesn't know Jesus might not get. When it comes to the spiritual realm... Unless a man is born again, he is, before God, impoverished, uninformed. He himself is a criminal. So Paul says it's idiotic for spiritual children of the king to go to one who is a criminal before that king to settle their differences. You hear what I'm saying? I hope you're not misinterpreting what I'm saying. I'm not trying to downgrade that profession because it's a wonderful thing and we need it. But spiritually, Paul says... Look at what you're doing. And then he says, he's talking about the unrighteous. Now he says, compare that to what's available to you. You are taking these things to unrighteous men. He says, but look at what's available to you. He says, go, do you dare to go to the law before the unrighteous, first one, and not before the saints? The word saints, very familiar to us. The word is hagios. It means set apart. It means consecrated to God. It means holy. You guys remember? He's talking about you. He's talking about you. If you came to know him, if you know him, you are set apart, consecrated to God. You are holy. I was going through some quotes by lawyers. One was spoken by Ray Kahn, and it says, I don't want to know what the law is. I want to know who the judge is. That's a good philosophy for a lawyer. Don't tell me about the rules. Tell me about the guy who's going to be deciding this. Paul is saying, look, if you're looking for a judge, someone to settle the issue, why would you go before someone God considers a criminal when you've got in this room right here 50 people maybe whom God considers holy, clean? Remember we learned the word ecclesia. It means to be set apart. It's like the governing council of a city. Paul said to these guys right off the bat, he said, you guys are the ecclesia. You are the governing body for God here in Corinth. Now, maybe you're thinking, what are you getting at? Are you saying that somebody could come to me and ask me to settle their issue? Maybe you're thinking, look, I'm not qualified. I could never settle a dispute here in the church. Well, then Paul would say to you, you better start studying for the bar exam because look at verse 2. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? What does he mean there when he says the saints will judge the world? Well, Daniel 7, Jude, verse 14 and 15, Revelation chapter 2, they all basically say that when Jesus comes back, we will rule and reign with him. I don't know what that means. I don't know if, you know, we're each going to get our own little city or what. But somehow he's expecting us to be able to help rule and reign the world. So Paul says, okay, your future, you're going to rule the world. Are you not able to handle this 
little claim between two of your brothers? Paul says, if you're not ready to help each other work these things out, he says, you better start hitting the books. You better start getting ready for your bar exam, if you will. You better start hitting the books and hitting your knees. He says, because the saints will judge the world. But look at verse 3. The saints will judge angels. He says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? I'm not sure exactly what that means. Um, I'm in good company, I think. J. Vernon McGee doesn't really understand what that means either. To say that we are going to judge angels, but we do have a few clues. Second Peter 2, verse 4, and Jude 1, verse 6, if you want to study on your own, basically say that there are angels who have fallen, who are awaiting judgments. And here Paul indicates that somehow we are part of that judgment process. Paul is basically building his case here saying, look, we're going to judge the world, we're going to judge angels, and you're telling me you can't settle these small things pertaining to this temporary small life? i got an application here. Do you notice here Paul's high view of the saints? Do you notice how he's saying, look, this is your future. He has a very high view of the church, a very high view of the saints. Here's my question. Do you have that same high view? I thought about naming the message today, who do you trust? Because that's what this is about. When you have a problem, and Paul's never saying we should, we're never going to have problems with each other. <laughs> we all know that that's just a given. We are going to have problems. But Paul says when you have problems, who do you trust? I can go on record today as saying I trust this group of people more than anybody I know. I think I should trust this group of people more than anybody I know. And I think you guys should trust this group of people. Now the question is, if anybody in this body cheats you, steals from you, tries to take something from you, you're going to show who you trust very quickly. Meaning, are you going to go out and sue that person immediately? Say, I'll see you in court. Or are you going to say, let's find somebody in the body who can settle this? Here's another application. What if you knew, what if I could convince you that in this life, say in the next 20 years, you were going to be appointed to the Supreme Court? What if I was to guarantee, I'm just like, well, I just see the future. In 20 years, you are going to be a part of the Supreme Court. Wouldn't you want to go to law school? <laughs> Wouldn't you want to pass the bar? Wouldn't you want to get really prepared? There's an application here. You guys are going to be on the Supreme Court. Don't you want to be prepared? Get in the Word. Get to know the Supreme Judge. Get to know His thoughts on every matter. Be in prayer. Pray for the saints. Pray for the body. Pray that God would increase our love for one another so that we can judge correctly. We're moving on now to verse 4. Verse 4, he says, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life. He's just said, look, these are very small issues in the grand scheme of things. If you then have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? This one's a little bit difficult. Put your thinking caps on here. Stay with me. 
Because there's three possible interpretations of this verse. There's really no punctuation in the original language. So there's all sorts of questions as, does this, is this a question? Is this a command? What is this? Um, three possible things. The first would be that this is an indicative or an indicative tense, which means Paul is saying to these guys, look, you are appointing those who are least esteemed by the church to settle your differences. Another possibility, and apparently this uh, New King James has chosen this one because they put a question mark on it, is the interrogative, meaning he forms it as a question, which is real close to the first one, which is basically where he's saying, look, why are you appointing people that the church esteems the least to settle your differences? And both of those, both of those definitions, both of those interpretations would fit really well here because... That's exactly what so many Christians do, is it not? How many times do Christians rail against the court system and then some of those same Christians turn around and use that court system to sue one another? Let me put it this way. If you, oh, by the way, I want to say this. I don't know of any situation that you guys are in, so I'm hoping that, that this catches you at a good time, but God knows. I'm so thankful that we can go through the scriptures and some, hopefully we can hit it at a time where you guys aren't specifically dealing with this and you'll, you'll be able to catch it ahead of time. But I apologize if it's catching you right at the right time, but that's, that's God's problem, your problem, okay? But think about this. If you are tempted to sue another brother, think about this. The court system that you are getting ready to use is the same court system that upholds the right of women to kill unborn babies. The court system that you are about to use is the same court system that let O.J. go, who is now writing a book saying, well, if I happen to have done it, this might have been the way I did it. This is the same court system that is physically removing the Ten Commandments from their property. They're basically physically saying, God's laws don't need to be here. Hello. See, Christians rail against the system. We esteem it lightly. And then when we have a disagreement with each other, all of a sudden the system becomes wonderful. It's, wow, this is great. Yeah, I'll force this man to do what I want him to do through the court system. All of a sudden it's this viable source of solving problems. Those are two possible interpretations. This is, the third one is what I kind of lean toward. It doesn't really matter. You can choose your interpretation. This third one is that he spoke it in the imperative. In other words, he gave a command, but it, was, it would be in a sarcastic tone. We saw that this in the last chapter or two. Paul has been known sometimes to take a sarcastic tone. Look at the, uh, at the beginning of verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. To me, that's an indication that he's basically saying, okay, this is, I'm not serious here. I'm tongue-in-cheek, but uh, hear me out. What Paul, I think, is saying is, okay, if it's true that we're going to judge the world, that we're going to judge angels... If you can't stand the thought of working it out as a family, Paul says, why don't you just do this? Why don't you just look around the church and agree on the person that you esteem the least in the church and ask them to solve your problem? Because Paul's saying, because at least they have the knowledge, the hidden wisdom that he calls of God. At least they're born again. He says, if, if, if you really are insisting on letting someone who is beneath the job 
do the job. Then he says, look for the, the lowest person, the least respected member of the church. By the way, don't you all come to me with this. Paul says at least that guy would be born again and maybe he could shed some light on forgiveness, on how families work things out, even the least among you. Paul says, verse 5, I say this to your shame. Then he says, is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? This would sting. Paul says, I'm looking for a wise man in the church of Corinth. Hello. Hello. Is there anyone who's wise in the church of Corinth? Do you guys remember? These guys were proud of their wisdom. I mean, this is one of the things we Corinthians do. We're right next to Athens. We're wise. We understand philosophy. All these things. We've got it all together. And Paul's like, uh, is there, you guys got these problems amongst you and no one in the church is wise enough to go to, to solve this? So, We've seen two of our eyes so far. By the end, we'll have four eyes. Our first eye is the issue is that brother is suing brother, sister is suing sister in the church at Corinth. Number two was the idiocy of the issue. Basically, Paul is saying that you are choosing unrighteous people to solve the righteous saints' problems. Number three, the third eye is the implications. What are the implications when Christian sues Christian? I, I find this interesting. I think what Paul's doing in verse uh, 6 and 7, he's going to talk about the implications for the one who's been offended. And then in the next few verses, he's going to talk about the implications for the one who does the offending. To me, if that's, if that's what Paul's doing here, it's kind of like he's a mediator right, right now. He's basically saying, okay, you guys. I know that you've been wronged, but hear me out. And he's saying, and you guys, you're totally wrong, and you need to listen. Look at verse 6. He says, in my opinion, these are the implications of Christian lawsuits for the offended, the one who actually is, has been wronged. Verse 6, he says, but brother goes to law against brother, and that, with an exclamation point, before unbelievers. You see what Paul's saying? The implication is, unbelievers are watching. And you know what they're thinking? When brother sues brother, unbelievers are thinking, you guys are no better than us. I mean, you say that Jesus redeems you, that he gives you love in your heart for your brother. And you're suing each other just like we are. The unbeliever says, you can't settle your issues any better than we can. You still go about trying to force your will upon a brother. Is what the unbeliever says. That's a tragedy. See, unbelievers are looking. They're hoping. They won't admit it. They laugh when we fail. But what they're really hoping is that we won't fail. Is that we actually will be a little different. That they can look at us and go, maybe it is real. Maybe God really can forgive me. Maybe God can make me a brand new person. That's why Paul says, look at verse 7. And this is serious stuff. Paul says, Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you should go to law against one another. The word failure there is hetema. It means to be defeated, to be conquered. Interesting. It's a legal word. Paul is saying, 
look, if you let this get to where you are suing one another in a court of law, letting those outside the church decide for you, he's basically saying you've already lost. He says because the stakes are so high spiritually, he's like you already are a defeated one. In other words, let me put it in plain English, when a Christian sues a Christian, when you sue, no one wins. The guy who loses, well, he, he loses his witness and other stuff. The guy who wins loses his witness. Paul says it's a no-win situation. It's a lose-lose proposition. Paul says it's an ugly suit. Understand what, what he's saying? He's saying even in a lawsuit, even the winner comes out a loser. Now, we see at the end of verse 7 an alternative, a reminder of our king. He says, why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Whoa. Paul is speaking to, remember, in my opinion, in these verses, I think he's speaking to him who has actually been wrong, who's been offended. This is radical stuff. Paul is saying, why not let yourself be wronged? Why not let yourself be cheated? That is really radical stuff, but it reminds me of someone, Jesus. We're going to take a, a little break do a little drama for you, okay? I've asked Scott to read the part of a Scotsman. Here's the story. Here's the deal. It'll go quick, I promise. This is a true story. Um, H.A. Ironside told this story to Ray Steadman, and I'm stealing it from Ray Steadman. But it's a true story. H.A. Ironside, he was a famous preacher. He talks about when he was eight years old, he was a little boy. His mom took him to a church. And they were, it was maybe a Tuesday night or whatever. They were having some meeting. They were uh, trying to work out some uh, real strong differences. There was some kind of difficulty in the church. There was some kind of injustice. He's only eight years old. Ironside doesn't remember what the issue was, but he knows that these people were hot. In the church, they were bickering. They were fighting. There was some injustice done. And one man in the midst of it, stood up and shook his fist and he said, I don't care what you do, I want my rights. A Scottish man, that was why I asked him, a Scottish man, an older man who's barely hears, he, he asked him to repeat and the man says, I said, I don't care what you do, I want my rights. Well, Sonny, the Lord Jesus came to get his right and throngs. He didn't come down to get his rights. Basically, that's it. The idea is that this wise old man said, you want your rights? Jesus, when he came, did not come to get his rights. He came to get his wrongs. You and me. He came to get me who was wrong. He did not come to get his rights. You are never more like your king than when you give up your rights. You can flip that on its head. You're never less like your king than when you demand 
your rights. Application we're going to see as we get to the end here. This, is, this one's simple. You can remember this. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Would he demand his rights? And maybe you're thinking at this point, especially if, if this is relevant to you today, you're thinking, well, wait a second. If I give up my rights, then that punk, I mean, my brother, he'll get away with it. Well, not exactly. Here's the implication for the offender. We've already seen the implication for the offended. Here's the implication for the offender. Verse 8, he says, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. And look at this list that happens after that. We've seen this list in other places. Interesting that Paul would put it here. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 9, Paul begins that, that verse with the words, do you not know? It'd be interesting if you want to do a study. Look at all the do you not knows in this chapter. I think there's like six of them. Every time Paul says that, he's basically like, okay, this is elementary. Uh, do we have to go back? Don't you understand? And then he, he says the issue. He says, do you not know? Isn't this understood by you? That everyone who practices these things, practicing meaning an ongoing, uh, continual state, says everyone who practices these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, maybe you're thinking, wait a second, wait a second. I, I've been drunk before. I'm even covetous sometimes. Is this saying I'm not, I'm not going to heaven? We have seen this list all over the New Testament. This isn't the only time. There's several times when this list comes about. It has, you know, a few variances here and there. But the idea is, is basically that it's not a list of one-time offenses that will get you kicked out of heaven. It is a list of ongoing patterns that, listen, those patterns even don't get you kicked out of heaven what they do is they call into question whether or not you were saved at all. Let me go over that list again. Neither fornicators, that means people who have sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, that's people who are constantly angry, who are raging, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, he, again, he's not saying, hey, you've got to be careful if you do this one time, you're, you're out. What he's saying is, is this part of your life? Is this something that hasn't changed? Because Jesus said you must be born again. It must be a change. There must be something different about you from before you were saved till now. If you're a fornicator and you get saved, you don't want to be a fornicator anymore. And you can go through that whole list. If you are these things and you get saved, you don't want to do those things anymore. It brings to mind the verse that says, make your calling and election sure. What that means is your calling and election is very complete. It's settled in heaven right now. But if it's not sure to you, it's because you're dabbling these things and who knows, is this part of my character or what? He says, make your calling and election sure by quitting that stuff and making sure that you are actually, you have been changed. But here's the question. Why this list here? 
I mean, isn't this whole section about lawsuits? I mean, why this section in the midst of a court case? Well, remember, in my opinion, he's talking to the offender. He's already talked to the offender and said, look, why don't you just let yourself be cheated? Jesus did. He turns to the offender and says, uh, in case you think you're getting away with something, read through this list. And what's the very last thing on the list? Like he's saving it for last. Extortioners. What do we call it when people have frivolous lawsuits, when people drag other people into court to extort money from them? I think Paul is, is saying to that person who is actually wrong, look, you've got a lot more at stake than the money that you want. You have a lot more at stake than the thing that you are trying to extract wrongly from your brother. You've got a lot bigger issue than you know about. We've seen the issue in Corinth. Brother was suing brother. We've seen the idiocy of the issue. The fact that they were taking this before unbelievers, unrighteous people to settle their, uh, something that should have been settled in the family. We've seen the implications of the issue. For the offended, the implication is, look, you're losing your witness. You, you, can, you can go to court and win, but you'll still be a loser. He says, to the offender, he says, you've got a lot more at stake. And that finished with this list of terrible sins, terrible natures, terrible patterns. And what do we come with at the end of verse 9? I love God. It says, we see, at the, after, after verse 9, we see the indescribable goodness of God. Let me, let me start at verse 9. It says, Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then, verse 11, six glorious words. He says, And such were some of you. Do you hear that? And such were some of you. He says, but you were washed. Paul says to these Corinthians who were bickering, who were fighting, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Running out of time here, but basically, verse 11 is the gospel in cliff notes. You guys remember cliff notes? If you, didn't, if you were too lazy to read the book, you could just read this. You go through verse 9 through 11 and you see the gospel in cliff notes. Paul's talking to a church that doesn't have it all together by any means. And he says, all of these things. And he's like, if I came to you, I would look you in the eye. And some of you, I would say, you were an adulterer. And God has changed you. You were an idolater. And God has changed you. You were a homosexual. And God has changed you. This is the gospel in cliff notes. These are some of the worst offenses. These are some of the worst offenders. But the beautiful thing is it's past tense. This church was filled with these offenders. But it was past tense. When you start using Jesus' yardstick, we all fall into this group. Adulterers. Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're an adulterer. You start using his yardstick, we all fall into this group. But it says that we were washed, sanctified, and justified. That means all that stuff is past tense. This is the gospel in cliff notes. This is the story of how the name Jesus, it says at the end of verse 11, and the Spirit of our God could take a sinner like me 
and wash me. Completely clean. He could sanctify me. What does that mean? It means to set apart. He has set me apart. He has set you apart. And He has, can take us and justify us. That's the most amazing word to me of all, which is, remember how to remember, remember that? When you, yeah, when you hear the word justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Jesus makes you just as if you'd never sinned. That's your fourth I, the indescribable goodness of God. Paul says to the Corinthians, look, you've been washed, you've been set apart. You've been made just as if you'd never sinned. Paul says, why would you want to air your dirty laundry? You've been made clean. Why would you want to put on that ugly suit? 